In March of 2020, I was serving as lead minister of a church of the Nazarene in Camillus, New York, a suburb just southwest of Syracuse. News of the spread of the COVID-19 virus in the U.S. had begun to be discussed in December of 2019 and January of 2020. The first confirmed case in the U.S. was reported on January 20, 2020, and by February, the virus was spreading prolifically. On Sunday, March 15th of that year, we worshipped in person in our sanctuary. By the next Sunday, we were locked down and began to worship remotely over social media. On Sunday, March 29th, I opened the sermon portion of our worship with some words of reflection, exhortation, and encouragement. Today is January 27th, 2023, and in some ways the events of 2020 seem like ancient history, while in other ways it seems like we are still living in the same space. This weekend, I want to revisit the exhortation I made to that congregation in Camillus two weeks into the COVID-19 lockdown in central New York. Let's listen first to those reflections from March 29th, 2020. Uh, We didn't know that this was coming, though we have been talking a lot here for the last two years, and I've honestly been preaching for the last four years. I think it was 2016 that the Lord began to lay on my heart that judgment was coming. And for the last two years, I've been talking about this with our church. We've been talking about the idols that needed to be laid down. We talked about the fact that our culture and the world in general has been sticking its finger in God's eye, has been asking God to walk away, has been pushing and pushing against religion as a source of truth, has been marginalizing Christianity to just one of a number of world religions, all who claim to have the corner on truth and none of which do. Our cultures have been doing this for a good long time. It's been centuries, really, in Europe, but it's really come to a head in the last couple of decades, infecting even the Church of God um, in, in many ways. And so many of us have been discerning that things would get worse uh, because of that, that the normal kind of protections that God gives us in the world would begin to, to be taken back. Not many of us are fully aware of the fact that the universe is much more dangerous than what we typically experience on earth. That the Lord, according to the scriptures, has put barriers in the heavens and on the earth to separate us from the waters. And the waters in the scriptures, we've been talking about this over the last two years, they represent chaos, they represent all the things that would destroy us, they represent anything that wars against life and the orderliness of God's creation. And God holds these waters at bay. He set up barriers to protect us. Now the world is still unsafe and the more sin comes in the more of that ancient chaos comes in and the more dangerous the world becomes. But it is God who protects the earth, who has made this little cradle. And we can look through the the geological history of the earth and see that there have been catastrophes catastrophes in the past and the scriptures reveal that that's the case. Even in more recent history, in the history of humanity on earth, uh, there is record of the flood. So there have been catastrophes, but God has been keeping this world safe. He is the source of its stability, even though there are many microorganisms and many viruses and other things that come in and do damage to the human race, God keeps most of it at bay. Most of what comes in, we eventually learn how to handle. But what we are not aware of is how much God keeps out that we could not handle. This is the work of our God 
and his love for all creation and for the people of the earth. In seasons like this, God removes a finger from the levee and allows a little bit of the chaos to sneak through so that we might see what it really looks like to live in a world without God. Things like this are just a taste of that, to remind us how vulnerable we are, to remind us how much we need Him. And we've been talking about the fact that people have been putting their faith for a good long time in a great number of idols. We've been trying over the course of two years to dismantle the idols, to take down what the Bible calls the Asherah poles and the high places and the altars to Baal and to other gods. We've talked about the God of nation, the God of safety, the God of fear, the God of family, the God of children, the God of success, of power, security. All these places we put our trust, all these places we give our worship, all these things we sacrifice ourselves for believing that they can keep us safe. The gods of medicine, of technology, even of science and of reason and of human intelligence and ingenuity. These things we're tempted to worship. We recognize that these are gifts given to us by God to use in His service and to exercise as part of our responsibility to be stewards of creation and rulers over the earth. But it's very easy for each of these things to become ends in themselves, to become objects of worship. The ancients made idols and created personalities for these things. We don't do that anymore, and so we often think we're not idol worshippers. But we are. All the things that the, the false gods of the ancient world represented, they still exist in our world. We have de-mythologized them, but they are still here, and many in the world worship them. Many even in the church worship them. When I first came to Christ Community, we brought a song with us that the Lord, I felt the Lord had given us in New Hampshire. Uh, it was the song, Clear the Stage. And one of the things that the singer and the songwriter said in that song is that we have to set the stage and the lights ablaze. We need to remove the music. We need to remove all these things that can draw our attention because sometimes we worship the emotional feeling we get in a service and we call that emotional feeling God and we begin to seek after that emotional experience as though that were the God we were worshiping. And I remember listening to that song realizing that I, I'm not even sure I can hear the voice of God. I don't even know if I know His presence because I so quickly associate it with these ecstatic experiences that come in the context of an emotion-filled worship service. How do I know that's God? I remember all those things. Well, the Lord now, in, in, in a strange way, a way that I never would have anticipated, has cleared the stage. We can no longer gather with 100 or 200 or 500 or 1,000 or 8,000 or 10,000 people and feel the energy of the audience and listen to this amazing worship set and feel the energy of the music running through us and then get swept up into the moment and believe that that's the presence of God. We, we no longer are able to do that. God has placed His church now in, in isolation where the Spirit of God can't be manufactured. It can't be duplicated by an, uh, an intense emotional experience. Now, 
you're left with a television set and a stripped down service and a message coming to you uh, from someone speaking far distant. And now we ask again, how do I know the presence of the Lord? This is a time of training for the church. A time to step back and to think again. Who is God? How do I know I'm following Him? What does He want of me? How do I know when I'm in His presence? How can I have a relationship with Him? We've often take sh taken shortcuts in the church. Some of us have been legalists, and we think if I just do this right set of things, I know I'm in God's good graces, and then we never worry about it again. Whether it's feeding the poor, or serving at a soup kitchen, or going to church every Sunday, or tithing regularly, 10% uh, of our income, or serving on a, on a church board, or giving some of our time to this or that charity. We figure, hey, as long as I do those things, I'm good with God, and then we never really think about it again. There are others of us who depend on music and worship leaders and charismatic speakers and the size of crowds to kind of get us out of our heads and into a space, a similar space that people who go to rock concerts are looking to get into. This space in which the music and the atmosphere and, and the energy of the people and the, and the quality of the performance all come together and I can feel lifted and uplifted and, and then we convince ourselves that that's God and these people know how to invoke him. These people know how to bring him. And then we go to a maybe a smaller church or a church that has having some technical difficulties on some Sunday and they can't quite manufacture that experience and we think, oh, God's not here. Well, now we're in a place where the discernment has to be different. We have to hear the word preached or see, see a simple musical set by non-professional performers. And we need to ask, is the Lord in this? How would I know? How do I know if this is the word of God or just the word of a human being? How do I know if this is a, a good and, and godly interpretation of these sacred scriptures or whether this is just a, a learned interpretation or one that I find practical? How do we know if it's the truth? You're now in a better position to begin asking those questions than you have been probably in your lifetime. I know I'm in a, a better position myself. And I ask myself as the minister who's been given the responsibility of preaching the word, what does it mean to be a person of God in a world like this? If you're asking that question, I'm asking it with you. Let's continue in the trajectory set by those exhortations three years ago. We find the following confession in Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders, the Lord over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild, a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. 
The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord causes the oaks to whirl and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all say, Glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. To say that the voice of the Lord is over the waters is to recall creation. Genesis tells us in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind or a spirit from God swept or hovered over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. To return to the language of Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord causes the oaks to whirl and strips the forest bare. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The waters are representative of what was before God created, before God spoke. God tamed them, ordered them, organized them, and brought life where all had been lifeless. The psalmist proclaimed God as continuing to exercise this same authority over the waters. He sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever, exercising the same authority over the waters long after initial creation. The writer of Psalm 121 spoke similarly when he wrote, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The phrase that the New Revised Standard Version translates as who made is a call participle in Hebrew. It intonates not simply that God made the heavens and the earth, but rather that God is the one who is making the heavens and the earth. From the perspective of the psalmist, God was not only the creator, but also the keeper, the one who keeps, the one who watches over the heavens and the earth. As I shared with that congregation three years ago, we often think of the earth as a wound-up clock. So long as the stored-up energy continues, the mechanism runs on its own. We call these laws of nature or cosmic principles or whatever else. When we think of the earth in this way, miracles become interruptions, a bit of excess energy smuggled into our closed system. Miracles are akin to a hand winding the clock or to a horologist tool being inserted into the running machine. This is not the view of the writers of the Christian scriptures, neither the Old Testament prophets nor the apostolic writers of the New Testament. As the theologian John Calvin wrote centuries ago, and concerning inanimate objects, we ought to hold that, although each one has by nature been endowed with its own property, yet it does not exercise its own power except insofar as it is directed by God's ever-present hand. These are thus nothing but instruments to which God continually imparts as much effectiveness as he wills, and according to his own purpose bends and turns them to either one action or another. Our God is a God of what the Hebrew scriptures call chesed and emet. Loyalty and steadfastness. Love and truth. God is consistent 
is what that means, and regular in his administration of the earth. God is so full of chesed and emet, in fact, that God's activity appears to be laws or law-ish. It appears that the universe is running by immutable principles of motion and attraction and so on. As Jesus washed his disciples' feet, taking the form of a servant, so God serves creation every moment of every day, washing its feet, so to speak, maintaining its order and regularity. As Jesus explained to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 to 31, in encouraging them not to fear those who might oppose them who proclaim the gospel of Jesus, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now whether God causes by decree the death of every sparrow, as Calvin seems to have believed, or whether Jesus was declaring that no such event could occur apart from God's sovereign permission, is another conversation. In either case, both the psalmist who penned Psalm 29 and 121 and Jesus described a universe in which the regularity and stability of nature and the suitableness of the world for all life in general, and for human life in particular, were all under the watch care of God. For believers, therefore, increasing environmental upheaval can mean only two possible things. Either God is allowing the environment to become less suitable for life, or God is causing the environment to become less suitable. Cause and effect is a consequence of the watch care of God, but it is not absolute for Christians. The scriptures do not speak of laws of nature. Instead, they speak of God as keeping or watching over creation. The scriptures do not speak of random environmental catastrophes. Instead, they speak of God's voice commanding the waters. The scriptures do not present humans as products of and slaves to the laws of nature. Instead, they speak of humans as creations of God and all authority in heaven and on earth belonging to Jesus. Now, to observe this is not to say that any given human at any given time knows how to interpret God's intentions. Only God can speak to God's intentions. Why God has allowed or caused a given environmental catastrophe to occur is beyond human investigation. This was the role of prophets for God. Through prophets, God explained what he was about to do and why. God's acts cannot be interpreted by humans. They can only be explained by God. To say that the stability or instability of the environment is in the sovereign hands of God is not to say that we can explain or understand any particular moment of stability or instability. Historically, in cases in which God intended certain events to call his people to repentance, he sent prophets in advance to warn them, and he sent prophets in the midst to cry out, Repent! However, in cases in which God's judgment was final, and he intended no offer of repentance, as in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God did not send prophets. He simply sent devastation. What I suggested in my comments from 2020 was that God had been sending prophets to warn the Christian communities of the West for centuries, and therefore that what began in the early 20th century and what began again in 2020 were judgments intended to call God's people back to him. I believe that still. In fact, the ever-increasing instability of global climate in recent years is part of this call of God to his people. 
How do I know? Years ago, what I can only explain is the word of the Lord coming to me, said, These are my locusts. That is a reference to the oracles of the Old Testament prophet Joel in the wake of a devastating locust plague that had decimated the crops of Israel just as they were to be harvested, leaving the people in a desperate situation. We find the following in Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful army comes. Their like has never been from of old, nor will be again after them in ages to come. Fire devours in front of them, and behind them a flame burns. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, but after them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, and like war horses they charge. As with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. Each keeps to its own course. They do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another. Each keeps to its own track. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice at the head of his army. How vast is his host. Numberless are those who obey his command. Truly the day of the Lord is great. Terrible indeed. Who can endure it? Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. God will judge the world. But for we who are followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, we must heed these warnings, accept God's reprimand, and return to faithfulness to him and to his teachings. Let's conclude our time of discernment with an exhortation from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1-11. through Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night and those who are drunk get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. For those who have ears to hear, listen. To what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen.